Daniel chapter 11. Uh, And so with your Bible open and something to take a few notes with, you'll be in good shape. Uh, In November of 2017, a psychiatrist and professor named Dr. Mary Moeller uh, presented a lecture on the impact of chronic fear on a person's wellness. And what her studies have shown is that fear has a way of impacting every aspect of a person's existence. Her study showed that chronic fear impacts a person's immune system, their endocrine system, nervous system, their sleep-wake cycle, as well as eating habits. Uh, Fear's impact on emotions is devastating. Chronic fear causes dissociation from self. It inhibits feelings of love. It creates a phobic anxiety. And what interested me uh, supremely about this study is that she also included a section on the consequences of chronic fear on spiritual health. She said it causes bitterness towards God or others. It creates disgust with God. It creates a loss of trust in God as well as a sense of despair related to a perceived loss of spirituality. Fear has devastating impacts on the lives of people. What are you afraid of? What creates fear in you? Daniel chapter 11 addresses our fears directly. Daniel himself was a man who was afraid. In our study of the book of Daniel, in this second half of the book in particular, uh, we have seen on four different occasions that Daniel was in distress afraid of what was going to happen to God's people after the exile. And all four times, his fears were answered by a vision from God. Isn't that surprising? These visions, as as we've studied them, and we'll study the last one today, they're some of the most challenging passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. They're really difficult to make sense of. There's a lot of places we just have to say, I don't know. I'm going to do my best to understand it, but I just don't know. And yet, it's these very visions that were given to fortify a fearful Daniel, to encourage him and to strengthen him for the days ahead. And so that's what we want Daniel chapter 11 to do for us today as well. We're going to pursue a God-given courage this morning. We want to so trust in God's depiction of the future that our faith leaves no room for fear in our day-to-day lives. I want to give one quick disclaimer about the kind of fear we're talking about and the kind of fear we're not talking about. This morning, we're going to focus on the type of fear that arises from situations that cause us to distrust God or for our faith to be fractured in different ways. What we're not talking about from Daniel 11 today is the type of fear that may come from deeper causes like mental health issues. That kind of fear requires a lot of help. It's not the kind of fear that we can just pray away. And if this is a fear that you carry in yourself day after day, I want to encourage you to use all the good resources God has given us. Doctors and counselors and therapists and medication and the Word and prayer and your church family to help you as you address those issues. Now, our passage today, it's a part of a larger section. 
chapters 10, 11, and 12 are a singular unit. Last week in chapter 10, we saw the angel of the Lord visit Daniel in his distress, and all of chapter 10 is just the angel preparing Daniel to receive the vision. It's just prologue. Chapter 11, verse 2, through chapter 12, verse 4, where we're spending our time today, that is the vision proper. And then next week, we'll handle the rest of Daniel 12, the angel's concluding words of encouragement and hope to Daniel and to the church. Now, the vision we're about to read, it's got a lot of details in it, and it's easy to get lost in, and you should almost expect to get lost in it to some degree. Because it talks about various kingdoms. The kingdom of the north invades the kingdom of the south. And this one was given to this one in marriage. And all these things are happening. Back. It's hard to trace. But know this. The events that we are reading about are historically traceable, every single one of them. It is stunning how accurate Daniel chapter 11 is in what it foretells and the way it came to pass. From Daniel's seat... All of chapter 11 and 12 that we're going to read this morning, all of that was future to him. From your seat, portions of chapter 11 are history, already fulfilled, prophecy fulfilled, and other portions are future, it's prophecy yet to be fulfilled. Now, I've provided a slide for you this morning as we read, just a little simple road map is going to be here on the screen just to kind of give you a footing as to where we are in the chapter as we read through it. And these are the kingdoms and the people talked about in the various verses. So as we're reading, if you get lost, feel free just to reference right up here. But we start with the Persian kingdom in verse 2, and then the kingdom of Greece, and then we have uh, Alexander the Great's kingdom is given to the four winds of the earth. And that's the Egyptian, Seleucid, Asia Minor, Macedonia... And then we turn our focus to some specific individuals, okay? So, all that to say, buckle up. It's going to be awesome. This passage addresses our fear. And on the other side of this morning, we're going to walk out of here with courage and dedication to walk in the days ahead with God. So I want you to follow along with me as I read. Daniel chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 2. Remember that verse 2 begins by telling us about the Persian kingdom. The angel of the Lord says to Daniel, verse 2, Now I will tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth will be far richer than the others. By the power he gains through his riches, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a warrior king will arise. He will rule a vast realm and do whatever he wants. But as soon as he is established, his kingdom will be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his descendants. It will not be the same kingdom that he ruled because his kingdom will be uprooted and will go to others besides them. All right, now remember verse 5. Now we begin to talk about these different kingdoms, a lot of back and forth between them. The king of the south will grow powerful, but one of his commanders will grow more powerful and will rule a kingdom greater than his. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to seal the agreement. She will not retain power, and his strength will not endure. She will be given up together with her entourage, her father, and the one who supported her during those times. In the place of the king of the south, one from her family will rise up, come against the army, and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He will take action against them in triumph. 
He will take even their gods captive to Egypt with their metal images and their precious articles of silver and gold. For some years he will stay away from the king of the north who will enter the kingdom of the king of the south and then return to his own land. His sons will mobilize for war and assemble a large number of armed forces. They will advance, sweeping through like a flood, and will again wage war as far as his fortress. Infuriated, the king of the south will march out to fight with the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but they will be handed over to his enemy. When the army is carried off, he will become arrogant and cause tens of thousands to fall, but he will not triumph. The king of the north will again raise a multitude larger than the first. After some years, he will advance with a great army and many supplies. In those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. Violent ones among your own people will assert themselves to fulfill a vision, but they will fail. Then the king of the north will come, build up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. The forces of the south will not stand. Even their select troops will not be able to resist. The king of the north who comes against him will do whatever he wants, and no one can oppose him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land with total destruction in his hand. He will resolve to come with the force of his whole kingdom and reach an agreement with him. He will give him a daughter in marriage to destroy it, but she will not stand with him or support him. Then he will turn his attention to the coasts and islands and capture many, but a commander will put an end to his taunting. Instead, he will turn his taunts against him. He will turn his attention back to the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble, fall, and be no more. In his place, one will arise who will send out a tax collector for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he will be broken, though not in anger or in battle. Now we transition subjects again. We go from the four warring kingdoms to a tyrant of God's people, Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 21. In his place, a despised person will arise. Royal honors will not be given to him, but he will come during a time of peace and seize the kingdom by intrigue. A flood of forces will be swept away before him. They will be broken as well as the covenant prince. After an alliance is made with him, he will act deceitfully. He will rise to power with a small nation. During a time of peace, he will come into the richest parts of the province and do what his fathers and predecessors never did. He will lavish plunder, loot, and wealth on his followers, and he will make plans against fortified cities, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will prepare for battle with an extremely large and powerful army, but he will not succeed because plots will be made against him. Those who eat his provisions will destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall slain. The two kings whose hearts are bent on evil will speak lies at the same table but to no avail for still the end will come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his land with great wealth but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action then return to his own land. At the appointed time he will come again to the south but this time will not be like the first Ships of Katim will come against him, and being intimidated, he will withdraw. Then he will rage against the Holy Covenant and take action. On his return, he will favor those who abandoned the Holy Covenant. His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will be strong and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many, yet they will fall by the sword and flame and be captured and plundered for a time. When they fall, 
They will be helped by some, but many others will join them insincerely. Some of those who have insight will fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Now, verse 36, we transition again. This time we move to the distant future. It's future for us. From 36 on describes the end of days and the work of the Antichrist. We'll talk more about it in just a moment. Verse 36, then the king will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. And he will say outrageous things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is complete because what has been decreed will be accomplished. He will not show regard for the gods of his fathers, the god desired by women, or for any other god because he will magnify himself above all. Instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god his fathers did not know, with gold, silver, precious stones, and riches. He will deal with the strongest fortress with the help of a foreign god. He will greatly honor those who acknowledge him, making them rulers over many and distributing land as a reward. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, but the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. He will invade countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land, and many will fall. But these will escape from his power, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of the Ammonites. He will extend his power against the countries, and not even the land of Egypt will escape. He will get control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the riches of Egypt. The Libyans and Cushites will also be in submission, but reports from the east and the north will terrify him, and he will go out with great fury to annihilate and completely destroy many. He will pitch his royal tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain, but he will meet his end with no one to help him. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands watch over your people, will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal the book until the time of the end. Many will roam about and knowledge will increase. Good job. You did it. It's a lot. Is my mic on? Are we good? It's a lot to take in, uh, but it is digestible, and that's my goal this morning. Remember back in chapter 10, the angel of the Lord, when he appeared to Daniel, he told Daniel, do not be afraid. I've come to help you understand what will happen to your people in the last days. Do not be afraid. Be very strong. That's the whole setting for this long vision we've just read. It's to give courage to the fearful. And so let's talk first about the things that cause us fear. And in this passage, it identifies three different sources of fear. So here's what we know to be true. We know, first of all, that God's people face many fearful situations. 
It's true of every person. It's been true in every era of the history of the church. God's people have faced many fearful situations. The bulk of chapter 11, almost all of it, is fear after fear after fear piled on top of the church. And there's three sources in particular given in this passage. First of all is the chaos of nations. So in verses 2 through 20... We go through at least six different kingdoms in a total of 375 years. Isn't that nuts? Just in those little verses, 2 through 20, about 400 years of history. And what did we see in those verses? Did you, did you find yourself kind of getting lost in the back and forth? This kingdom invades this kingdom. This one marries off this one. And all, but, but his plans don't succeed and this one succeeds. Did you find yourself getting lost in all of that? I, I did. And I think that's intentional. Who came out on top in the jostling of all those kingdoms? Nobody, right? Whose kingdom lasted forever? Nobody. Year after year, the nations raged against each other in a display of utter, brutal foolishness. Now, although these words describe events that are 2,400 years old, they could have been written yesterday, Every day is filled with wars and rumors of wars. This is nothing new for us. To see nations in chaos, to see craziness consume the headlines, is just standard operating procedure for us. We see it all the time. So it's an old fear, but still it's a fear nonetheless. We've seen the toll that warring nations have taken on soldiers and citizens alike. And in the chaos of nations... We're confronted with situations that ultimately are beyond our control. We don't have a say in the events of chapter 11. We, we don't get to dictate or change the way things go or the way things might turn out. Even in countries where people have a vote, a vote is no guarantee of a safe government or a sane government. It's a power that's beyond our control, ultimately. If we were to take our spotlight and we were to focus more closely to home, Isn't it true that in our lives we often face situations that are beyond our control? It may happen on a grand level in terms of nation versus nation. It can happen on a much smaller and personal level as well. Sickness, a broken relationship, the blast radius of addiction, mental health issues. Our experiences with situations like these, they may not impact nations But still, the impact is deep, nonetheless, in our lives. Those situations that are beyond our control are fertile ground for fear. Now, from the chaos of nations, the second source of fear in chapter 11 is the evil of men. In verses 21 through 35, the focus shifts from talking about nations against nations to focusing on one man in particular. History tells us this is a tyrant named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he ruled the Seleucid Empire from 175 B.C. to 164 B.C. I want you to get a sense of how vast his empire was, so I want to show you a map just to give you a quick little glimpse. So all the darkened area in the middle from the Mediterranean Sea, from what is today southern Turkey, all the way east uh, to modern-day India. That's the Seleucid Empire, a massive swath of property at the peak of its powers. 
175 BC, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes seizes control by force. I know we've heard of him before in Daniel's visions. In Daniel chapter 7, Antiochus is the little horn who's a terror greater than grotesque, beastly nations. And in chapter 8, he's the one who sets himself up as a god and stands against the Prince of Peace. And in chapter 9, he's a primary factor in the difficult days of God's people. So we've seen him over and over again in these visions. History tells us that Antiochus should be named among the most horrific tyrants to ever walk the earth. His brutality and bloodshed, and specifically his destruction of God's people, was monstrous. Under his regime, you either lived a pagan or you died an Israelite. Consider this. The first 19 verses of chapter 11 covers 375 years of history, multiple kingdoms. But then, from there, the next 15 verses cover just 12 years and one man. And why is it? Why is it that the single reign of Antiochus gets equal space with 375 years before him? It's because of the severity of his reign, the intensity of his brutality. Chapter 11 describes the chaos of his reign, and especially his brutality against God's people. Verse 30 describes it like this, he will rage against the holy covenant and take action. He rages against God's people. Now, history has sadly given us many people like him. He was not the last of his kind. We have seen dictators and tyrants rise in every generation of humanity. But if we were to take the spotlight and bring it a little closer to home, you might have a story that says, hey, my life was also impacted by an evil person. It may not have been someone with an army, Or control of a country. But the people of this church are filled with stories of great suffering at the hands of wicked men and women. To remember those stories might be to remember our fear. Perhaps to experience that fear again. But we know what it is to be afraid of evil people. We experience fear from the chaos of nations, from the evil of men. Third in this story, we experience fear from the final days of history. The final days of history. We've got this terrifying depiction of what's to come. Now, when you're reading through Daniel chapter 11, you get to verse 36, you have to make a decision as the reader. Who is this passage talking about from verse 36 on? You've got two options. You might say, one, this is still teaching or talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. Or option two is this is a shift in focus to the Antichrist, the the great uh, enemy of God and his Messiah and their people. So if you want to argue for Antiochus, here's the argument. You would say this. Uh, You would say there is no clear transition to another person from verse 35 to verse 36. In other places, when Daniel's writing, he makes it clear when he shifts subject matter. But that's not the case from verse 35 to verse 36. It seems as if he's still speaking about the same person. And if we insist on saying, well, verse 36 is a reference to the Antichrist, then we're probably reading our theology into the text rather than getting it from the text. That would be the argument for Antiochus. Here's the argument 
to, that says, no, this is actually a different person. This is the Antichrist. We'd say this, that everything up to verse 36 describes Antiochus perfectly. You can trace everything said about Antiochus in history up to verse 36. But from verse 36 on, the events described are not found in the life of Antiochus. So although there's no clear transition to another person, it's clear that the vision is speaking of an evil for whom Antiochus was just a shadow. This is the greater Antiochus, the Antichrist. And these are not events in history past, but they are events in history to come. My take on this passage, I'm not saying it's the right one, but I've got to settle somewhere and we've got to move forward together to finish out this passage. I'm saying it's a shift in focus. That at verse 36, here we have the Antichrist in view. And what's said from 36 to the end of chapter 12, verse 4, is all future for us. And I don't think it's metaphor. And I don't think it's suggestion. I think it is real. Everything we've read prior to this in chapter 11 is traceable in history. It is so accurate, it causes Bible scholars to doubt its truthfulness. They'll say, there's no way chapter 11's prophecy. It was written by someone much later who looked back at the events of these kingdoms and then wrote it in the style of prophecy, to which you and I say, <laughs> says who? You got a degree and you get to just make up these things because it doesn't fit your framework? That the Bible is not a supernatural book given by a self-revealing God who loves his people and charted every step of history and gives us glimpses of grace at the end of all things to help us in the mess of these days. Well, that's just ridiculous. Of course it's prophecy. And of course it's true. And if everything in chapter 11 is true, then I'm going to believe what it says about the future to come for us. We read these to prepare. And the way it describes these last days for you and I is terrifying. Great description of what it's going to be like is found in verse 44. We're told the Antichrist will go out with great fury to annihilate and completely destroy many. In chapter 12, verse 1, we're told there will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. Think of all the horrors we have seen dropped on humanity. We have seen genocides, human atrocities of every kind, man-made destruction of every kind, and yet the intensity of these final days will be like nothing that has ever happened. This one will be successful in his wrath. He'll operate in blatant corruption. He'll strike against God's people. He'll strike against God. His battlefront is spiritual and physical. And if you were to skip ahead to chapter 12, verse 7, you would read that his terror does not end until the power of the holy people is shattered. The end of his terror comes at the end of our strength. Now, these descriptions of horrors past in chapter 11 and horrors to come and our experiences of horrors past and horrors to come, they give us every reason to be afraid. When evil seems to have its way, when wicked prosper, when the righteous suffer, it seems right to be gripped by fear. And yet the angel of the Lord told Daniel two different times in chapter 10, do not be afraid. 
And why is it that neither Daniel nor we should be defined by fear, regardless of what we're facing? Although we face many fear-inducing situations, the second truth this story screams at us is that God's people have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. And there's two incredible places where this comes to life in the passage. We have nothing to fear, first of all, because we know how to live today. We're not left without guidance for this moment and for these steps. This is not just something that is future tense and we wait to get there. It's for this moment and this day we know how to live in the midst of the chaos of our world. If we go back to the description of the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, what we find is that in the midst of all of his destruction, God's people are actually flourishing and surviving and laying down their lives honorably, clinging to faith in God the whole way through. In verse 32, we're told that the people who know their God will be strong and take action. So when the world does its worst, God's people find our strength in God. Here's this tyrant that, that consumes all the headlines, and yet in the midst of that, the people who know their God will be strong. And again, these are the words of the angel to Daniel. Don't be afraid. Be very strong. And why could Daniel be strong? Because he uncovered some reservoir of strength he didn't know he had, and he just said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No. He's strong because his God is strong. We're strong because Christ is strong. My strength doesn't come from me. I have no strength to give to endure the chaos and the evil all around me. We need God. And he gives himself to us in this way to give us strength to endure. In verse 33, we're told those who have insight among the many will give understanding to many. So when evil spreads, we spread the word of God. Think how subversive the simple act of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ is in a world ruled by evil men, evil actions, and chaos all around. It is a profound act of defiance. In verse 34, we're told that when God's people fall, they will be helped by some. Some will fall in death. Some will be martyred. Persecution will take the lives of many. But verse 34 says that when they fall, they'll be helped by some. So in the day-to-day battles of these days and the end days, God gives us help from unlikely sources, from the kindness of others. What does all this teach us but that God never loses sight of his child? And in the midst of a million reasons to fear, he helps us to live fruitful lives of faithful defiance. I heard a story recently that sort of brought this to light for me. It illustrates the way that we live faithfully with God in the midst of chaos around us. There's an old dead German theologian, a guy named Helmut Delicke, and uh, he lived in Stuttgart, Germany during World War II, and Stuttgart was hit by an Allied bombing run, and uh, much of the city was uh, left in rubble. Uh, Not long after that bombing run, uh, Helmut was going to check in on a friend of his, a man that he just named as Mr. Knoll. Uh, and he had heard that Mr. Knoll's very large home had been hit directly by a bomb. And so he was going over to help Mr. Knoll uh, begin to clear out some of the rubble. 
Uh, but Helmut said that when he got to Mr. Knoll's house, uh, Mr. Knoll met him out front dressed impeccably uh, with a flower on his lapel. And then he took Helmut into his kitchen that had suffered significant damage, but there's this one tiny corner that remained pristine. And there was a small coffee table set with a white tablecloth and fine china and a single rose in a vase. Chaos and destruction were all around, but at least in that little corner, life went on as it should. And isn't that what God's call on our life is like? We are to live the life of the next stage in the ruins of this present one. We can do that. Why? Because what do we have to fear of the chaos of nations or the evil of men when Jesus Christ has removed God's wrath on our sin at the cost of his own life? You think the wrath of Antiochus is something fearful? Consider the eternal, unyielding wrath of God against sin as described in the Bible. Antiochus, his wrath is momentary, fleeting. It ends with his own funeral. So, If Jesus died in my place, a sinner's place, and he took the punishment that my sin requires so that my life would be made right with God, that all wrath is removed, what do I have to fear? If God's for us, who can be against us? Jesus Christ laid down his life, and so we have hope in the day-to-day of this life. Not only do we know how to live today, but also we have security in the greatest trouble. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 12 are just incredible. The final five verses of the passage, they they highlight our eternal security in Christ. It starts in verse 45, actually, with a simple headline about the Antichrist. It says this, He will meet his end with no one to help him. And don't treat that line lightly. Like, you've, you've just read... Through all this insane rabble about nation versus nation and then awful things about Antiochus. And we get to the end of the chapter and you might be fatigued in your reading and your attempted understanding. But don't miss that line at the very end. He will meet his end with no one to help him. Over and over again in Daniel's visions, we're given these little one-liners of God's might and deliverance and his destruction of the destructors of his people. In chapter 7, verse 11, we're told he is killed and his body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. In chapter 8, verse 25, he will be broken but not by human hands. In chapter 9, verse 27, a decreed desolation will be poured out on the desolator. And we don't know exactly every detail of how this end comes. But here's what we do know from verses 1 through 4. It tells us that at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands watch over your people, will rise up. We've met Michael before. He shows up in chapter 10. And he is Israel's warrior advocate, fighting a spiritual battle that is very real and very unseen. In his battling on behalf of God's people, God is holding back evil and holding up his people. You need to understand that God has unseen armies standing behind his embattled people in their darkest trouble. You are never alone. 
This battle is not in your own strength, in your own way. God has dispatched armies to fight on your behalf. And so what do verses 1 through 4 tell us? A lot of things. It tells us first that we're a delivered people and we're a known people. Then in the midst of all of this, God is delivering us and rescuing us. At the end of verse 1, at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. So Michael and army dispatched to defeat and destroy the evil one and to rescue God's people. We escape and our names are written in the book of life. Here's more assurance that at a time when God's people are treated uh, like nothing, when God's people are uh, abused and hurt and afflicted and persecuted and killed, their names are known and precious to God. He doesn't forget us. And how will this deliverance take place? Well, verse 2 gives us part of an answer. Verse 2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life. And some will awake to disgrace and eternal contempt. This is the clearest reference to resurrection in the Old Testament. It's astounding, I'm telling you. So deliverance for some will at least come through resurrection. They are then a vindicated people. For though they've forfeited their lives in a time of suffering, their resurrection proves to be their deliverance. And more than that, it's an act of God's defiance against the ungodly tribulators of this age. Verse 3 goes on to give us encouragement. Look at what verse 3 says. It says, those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In the midst of this battle, when the world does its worst, when evil does its worst, still the gospel is spreading and many are being turned to righteousness. Isn't that great encouragement for us? It holds us up and bolsters us that the mission of God does not fail. So what I've wanted us to see in this is just how incredible God is in this whole chapter. That no sooner does he mention all of these horrible things that happened and will happen, than does he infuse rock-solid, immovable, indelible hope and deliverance into the hearts of his wobbly people. He never leaves us to the evil one. There is no question about God's place in our hurt and in our fear. He's a delivering, helping, close, loving God. And there is nothing that a saint-hating regime can do to remove the names written with the indelible ink of Christ's blood in the book of life. He holds you forever and ever. Chapter 11 and 12 give us so much to take in. But the short headline for this long final vision is this. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Here's where you get to push back. And you get to say, Cody, that sounds great theoretically. But you haven't been where I've been. You don't know what I know. I've got reasons to be afraid. And you're right. I haven't cried your tears and I haven't felt your fear But I want you to believe the Word of God over the situations you face. I want you to believe what He promises and what He does over a situational fear, no matter how intense that fear might be. So what is it that causes you fear? Is it death? Because death is nothing to fear when your name is written in the book of life. You will awake to eternal life 
you have nothing to fear. Are you afraid that God's not there? Well, haven't we seen how in chapter 11 and then in chapter 12, God is present with his people, more present than we can understand and imagine. And we've seen this play out throughout the story of the book of Daniel. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood before the fiery furnace, they did not know what the outcome would be, but they knew the character of their God. And when Daniel stood before the lion's den, he didn't know what the outcome would be, but he knew the character of his God. So we have nothing to fear there. Are you afraid of enemies? Well, remember, their demise is certain, marked on God's calendar. Daniel 12 gives us a clear description of what that's like, but Revelation 12 tells us even more of what it's like on the day that Michael and the armies of God come against the Antichrist. And it says this, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, but the dragon could not prevail. The accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Brothers and sisters, you have nothing to fear. Four different times in Daniel's life, he is in deep distress. And each time, he is given comfort from God by the way of these visions. And that same comfort is given to you and I today, not only from Daniel's book, but also from the mouth of Jesus. And he says this to you in John chapter 16, verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Let's pray. Father, I confess it is natural and normal for me and I think for us to be fearful. To be fearful in a way that hinders our trust in you, questions your character, doubts what the outcome of things will be, that inhibits the spread of the gospel. So we confess our weakness, and this is no surprise to you. You know that about us. And because you know that we are frail and fearful, you have given us your word. And we praise you for this. Thank you that our relationship with you is defined by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the righteousness that he gives those who trust in him. Thank you that having our book, our name written in the book of life holds us secure for all eternity. And Lord, with that comes your strength and your grace for every day we live on this planet. I'm grateful that we're not heading into an unknown future. We know exactly what the days ahead will be like. Difficult, challenging, fearful, but certain of victory. And so we praise your name for the hope you've given us this morning. We are weak. Lord, give us your strength. And we doubt, but Lord, give us your certainty. And we have questions, but Father, give us your wisdom that we would live faithfully these days in the chaos around us with our eyes set on that life to come. Father, thank you for what you've given us in your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.